Now, last weekend, we began this series, and if you remember, we talked about baptism. And so there's a couple things I want to say about last week that I didn't get to say uh, last weekend. And we had a chance last week to see 40 people make the decision to express kind of an inward decision outwardly through baptism here in this room. And it was an awesome celebration, and uh, we had a great time all together. And last week, uh, if, if you came and if God moved in your heart in some kind of special way last week, uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to be able to respond still. And so if you've never been baptized and you would like to be baptized, um, we just want to let you know this morning, you can let us know that by emailing us at baptisms at mounthorabumc.com. And we'll do our very best to create an opportunity for you to be able to uh, respond in baptism in some kind of way. So if last week did something in your heart, man, let us know about that. We would love to be able to respond in such a way to uh, allow you to partake in this sacrament through baptism. So now this morning we are in the midst of this sermon series still called Sacred Spaces. And, and uh, the Christian church for centuries has believed that there are certain spaces, times, rituals, ceremonies where God is especially present. Now, in the Methodist Church, we believe there to be two what we call sacraments, uh, unique ways that God offers grace to us, to every single person, where we can connect with him in very, very special and sacred ways. Now, last week, we talked about baptism being one of those two sacraments within the Methodist Church, but today, I want to talk about communion, the other uh, side of the sacraments here in the Methodist Church. Now, have you ever been, uh, maybe had an experience of some kind, and you don't really realize it's a sacred moment until after the fact? Like, you look back, and you're like, wow, that was something special. I didn't realize that at the time, but looking back now, that was a special, special thing. My son, Eli, when he was our only child at that point in time, uh, he and I used to have kind of like daddy-son days throughout the week. So like on Friday, if Jenna was working or something, a lot of times he and I would go, and we'd get breakfast in the morning. We would go get lunch somewhere in town. One of our favorite places to go was to Chick-fil-A, of course. So I'd take my son, we would go to Chick-fil-A, we would order a meal, and we'd come around the table with our food. And one of my favorite things to do with him when he was young is we would play a game called the question game. Now, the question game is very simple. I asked questions and, and he answered them. And so we would eat a meal together and I would just ask questions. I'd be like, hey, listen, um, what do you want to be when you get older? And he would think about it and then he would respond in some kind of thoughtful way. And I'd say, where's God? Where do you think God is right now? And he would think about it and he would respond in some kind of way. And oh, What's your favorite color? I mean, just every question I could think of as we ate a meal together, I just threw those questions out at him. And he thought about every single one of them. Why do you love Jesus? And he'd think about it and he'd respond in a, in a really uh, uh, thoughtful kind of way. And looking back on that now, the reason I wanted to play the question game when he was a kid is because hopefully we can play the question game when he's like 18 years old, hopefully. We can establish it then and then continue it on all throughout his life for open communication. But looking back when he was this little kid, we'd go to Chick-fil-A, we'd order our Christian chicken, we'd go sit down at the table to eat together, we'd have the question game, we'd connect. Looking back now, that was a, that was a sacred moment. Like there was something special going on there. And I think back to how special it was to connect with him just through a simple question answer kind of thing, eating a meal together, together around a table. That was a sacred moment. If I think back on it, God was like present there in a very real way. And I'm afraid that sometimes I missed it. You see, some of the most sacred moments that we will experience in life happen around the table. I mean, if you think about it as a family, now this gets lost in our culture too much today. We are so busy, but to come together as a family and eat a meal together, have conversation. How was your day? What's going on? You know, what are you looking forward to? As a family, that is a sacred space, a sacred time to connect with one another. And usually it happens around what? The dinner table, eating a meal together, spending time with each other. Maybe you have experienced this before. Maybe you sat down with some really good friends and you've had conversation after a meal well long into the night. You've talked about what God's doing in your life, what you're hoping for. 
Maybe with friends and family, you've sat at a dinner table and you've shed tears and you've mourned certain things and had conversation and prayer with one another. That's a sacred space. My favorite thing is to sit down at a meal with my kids now and have my kids hear them say the prayer before our meal. That is a sacred space. That's a beautiful thing. Some of the most sacred moments in our life take place around the table. It's like the veil between humanity and divinity gets very, very thin. This is what we're talking about when we talk about any kind of sacrament, any kind of sacred space like this where God gives us an opportunity in a tangible and real and visible way to connect with him through what we call a means of grace that's available for all people. The scriptures talk often about Jesus. Most of the, the way Jesus did ministry, if I'm honest, happens around the table. A good portion of Jesus' ministry in the gospel happens around some food. I like that about Jesus. Jesus sits down and has a meal with Zacchaeus after he invites himself to his house, after he pulls him out of the tree. Jesus sits down with a few loaves of bread and some fish. He feeds a whole crowd of 5,000 people. He enjoys a meal with Mary and Martha in their home. He ate with unreputable people at Levi's house and prepared some fish along the seashore alongside of Peter after his resurrection. A good portion of Jesus' ministry takes place around the table. I think it's because something sacred and special happens here. Jesus made sure to take every opportunity to make every mundane moment in people's lives something that was a sacred space. It's a testament, I believe, to the fact that God is always looking for opportunities and ways to connect with us. And too often, if we're not careful, we miss it. Because God is in the habit of making the simple things sacred. God makes the simple sacred. I'm afraid if we make the mistake of only seeing God work, only only seeing him show up in the things that are extraordinary, then we miss out on the day-to-day work that he's trying to do within our lives. You see, God is a God who makes the simple sacred. We can't always look for the extraordinary. We'll miss him every single time. You see, the Christian faith was never meant to be a showy religion. It's always meant to be a genuine relationship. It's the reason that God shows up in the scriptures and he forms us out of the dust of the ground, right out of the earth. It's the reason that Jesus is born into a dirty stable in Bethlehem. You know, it's it's the reason that God shows up through baptism by the washing of water. It's so simple. And it's the reason that Jesus shows up in our life through bread and wine. It's simple. It was a staple of every single ancient Near Eastern meal within Jewish culture. It would always be there. God makes the simple sacred. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it way better than I ever could. Here's what he says. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this to be rather crude and unspiritual, but God does not. God's always looking to connect with us. And this morning, if you feel like or you sense there's been a long time since you felt the presence of God in your life, maybe you've been looking for a way to connect with God for a very, very long time, perhaps one of the mistakes we've made is we're looking for Jesus in a crystal cathedral somewhere. And all along, we're missing him in the wooden boat, in the open field, and we're missing him around the kitchen table. One of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had, one of the most moving experiences I've ever had was actually in the Dominican Republic many years ago. 
And we were in a little town called Sasua, which is right outside, miles away from where many people come and spend time on vacation on the sandy shores, the bright blue sun, uh, skies, the, the sunny sun there in Sasua. It's a beautiful place to come and enjoy your time. But right outside the city, there's a garbage dump, a landfill. And so I had gone there with a group of people, and we had spent a whole day there in the landfill alongside of over 100 Haitian folks who lived right outside the dump and every day would travel into the dump to go through the trash to look for food, to look for things to be recycled, to try to eke out a living. And so this group of folks that I was with, we went into the dump that day, and we spent the entire day walking alongside of these folks, digging through the trash right alongside of them, being a part of their life for that day. We brought food for them to stave off the hunger for the day. We brought cool water to quench their thirst for the day. At the end of that day, we came together in the middle of this dump, in the middle of this landfill. In the hot, hot sun, we sang hymns together, all of us together. And after we sang hymns, we had brought bread and we had brought grape juice. And we took together communion right there in the middle of the dump. Different nationalities different backgrounds, different experiences, different languages, and yet we shared together the means of grace, a visual representation of God's presence with us, and that dump became a sacred space, right there in the mundane, right there in the simple. You see, communion, like baptism, is an ancient practice that has its, its roots deep within the early church. Followers of Jesus for centuries have taken the simple elements of bread and wine and the cup, and they have represented for them these deep spiritual truths. Now, in the Methodist church, we've referred to this sacrament as communion. And this practice of taking communion, what we oftentimes call it, is Eucharist. Everyone say Eucharist. Now, this word Eucharist is actually the Greek word Eucharista, which means specifically this, gratitude or thanksgiving. Gratitude, thanksgiving. This is a great way to describe what takes place when the church comes together through the sacrament of communion. We break the bread, we take the cup, and we express thanksgiving and gratitude. We're thankful for the cross. We are thankful for Jesus' sacrifice for us. And when we do this, when the early church did this, in this morning as we take communion with one another, now certainly in COVID-19 style with nice little cups that you have in your hand right now, we still are coming together to connect with one another and simply put what we are doing is we are being grateful and thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what it means for us in our life. And to take a deeper look this morning, I want to look at the two different parts of the elements of communion. And I want to dig into each and every one of them first and foremost before we bring them together at the end. This Eucharist, first and foremost, is the cup. Now traditionally this cup would be full of wine. And in many congregations it is still practiced to have wine at communion in many traditions. But for us in the Methodist church, we oftentimes use grape juice. And the reason is, it has a lot to do with our background and being a part of the prohibition kind of days here in our country. Also, we have a lot of partnerships with ministries to recovering addicts. And so we believe in the Methodist church, it's important for us to practice with grape juice. Thank you, Welches. So this morning, we're going to take part in communion with bread and grape juice. But either way, wine or juice, it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. It's what we're grateful for. It's what we're thankful for. The Apostle John writes in the book of 1 John in such a perfect way in chapter 4, he's discussing God's love for us. 
He's expressing in the best way possible, visually, what it's like for God to love us and manifest his love to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, here's what he says. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Then he says this, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Don't miss this part of what John's saying. Love is not expressed in the way that we love God first. You see, God loved us first, not the other way around. It's one of the reasons the sacraments are so special. It's God's way of giving himself to us in a visible and tangible kind of way. It's a means of grace and a special space where we connect with him. Because God loved us first, not the other way around. And so John says this, this is what love looks like. God sent his son Jesus, his one and only son, and Jesus became to us an atoning sacrifice. Now maybe in your Bible you might have a different translation and it might say something like this, Jesus became our propitiation, which is a big theological word. But both of these words, atoning sacrifice, propitiation, they actually come from a Hebrew word that really gives light to what John is trying to say here. This propitiation, this atoning sacrifice is the Greek way of talking about a Hebrew understanding which is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Now for any Jewish listener or reader as John writes this, they know instantly what he's talking about. Atoning sacrifice, propitiation. You're talking about mercy seat. Now in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was a specific location. It was actually the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. If you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, think like uh, Indiana Jones, Ark of the Covenant. Y'all remember this? Melting faces? Don't think like that. But Ark of the Covenant was a location and was a space, a box, inside of which held the broken Ten Commandments. It was a broken law of God. It was the sin of the people. They placed it inside the Ark of the Covenant, and that Ark of the Covenant lived and dwelled inside of the most holy of holy places inside of the temple. It had a lid on top of it made out of gold with two cherubim, two angels on each side. And what the priest would do when they would come and they would sacrifice for the sins of the people to atone for their sins, what they would do is they would take the blood of a sacrificed animal, they would pour it over the top of that lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it would cover what is known as the mercy seat. What they believed happened then is when God looked down from above into this, this box containing the broken law, the broken Ten Commandments, the sin of the people, he wouldn't see the sin anymore. Now he would have to look through what? The blood of the sacrifice. And the blood covered the sin. So when John writes here in 1 John that Jesus is our propitiation, he's our atoning sacrifice, what he's referring to is Jesus' death on the cross, the pouring out of his blood, was an atoning sacrifice for all humankind forever. Jesus' blood covers us. Now, now this is something to be thankful for. This is Eucharist. And the early church, they came together to take part of communion. Today, as we take part in communion, what we're doing is we are expressing our gratitude and our thankfulness because of Jesus' sacrificial act on the cross and the pouring out of his blood because the bible says apart from this blood the wages that we should receive what we have earned for our sin is death 
Because of our sin, it destroys our lives every time. It it separates us from God every time. Our pride, our greed, our lust, our racism, hate, adultery, hypocrisy, all of it is covered by the blood of Jesus. In this sacred space, through communion, we remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And we are thankful for his blood because it covers us. Now, alongside of the cup, there's also bread. There's also bread. Now, the story we're going to look at in John chapter 6 to really express the meaning of this bread comes right on the heels of probably one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed. When he took a few loaves of bread, two fish, and he came to a crowd of people of 5,000, and he fed them all. Now, after he feeds them, the Bible says that he goes across the Sea of Galilee, and that crowd follows him all the way across the water and meets him on the other side. And Jesus seems to think the reason they've come is they're looking for another free meal. Right? Jesus provided for all of them, and they've come for more. They want to have more. But here's what Jesus says to them I think is so important. He teaches them a very important principle here in verse 35, and he's talking about bread. Here's what he says in John 6, verse 35. Jesus speaks to them and declares to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. Jesus says, I know why you're here. Because I gave you a really good meal yesterday, and you've come back for more. But Jesus says, if I give you more bread, and you eat that bread, you'll be hungry again. You'll be hungry again. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the reason he says this is because Jesus knows that he's the only one who can truly satisfy. You see, the bread satisfies us. The blood covers us. And the bread satisfies us. One of my favorite things I've ever purchased in my entire life is a bread machine. Now, I know I don't look like a baker. You don't have to be a baker with a bread machine. It's very, very simple. You put all the things in, you let it sit for a few hours, and boom, you got fresh bread. So I've made all kinds of bread. I've made bread with cheese in it. I've made bread with all kinds of herbs and things inside of it. I've made bread with cinnamon and sugar. Come on, sugar somebody. Yeah. I've made bread with grains all through. Any kind of bread that you make in a bread machine, there's nothing like opening that bread machine up after it's done and the house smells like whatever you're cooking. You take it out, you put it on the table, and you cut that thing open and the steam comes out of it. It's a wonder bread. It's better than wonder bread. You've made it yourself. Take some butter, you put it on that bread, it melts all over. It's wonderful. But guess what? Even if I make it for you and you eat that, you will be hungry again. There's nothing in this life, there's nothing in this world that we could possibly desire and go after that will ever ever truly satisfy us. Any kind of success that you could ever desire and that you could actually achieve will still leave you wanting any kind, of, any kind of desire that you have for wealth will never satisfy. Any desire for material goods will always leave you empty. And so Jesus says to them in terms of bread, but he's speaking about something much more important. I am the bread of life. You will never be hungry again. I will satisfy you. And that is something worth being thankful for. That is Eucharist. Because the blood covers us of our sin. And the bread satisfies our deepest longing. You see, communion is a remembrance of the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Christ as a means of grace that God offers to all people. And he meets us here. 
in a very special and unique way in this sacred space. You see, God is always with us, but he's especially present within the sacraments. So just hours before Jesus would eventually be arrested, he'd be put on trial, falsely accused, he'd be crucified and killed on the cross. Jesus takes time to sit down to a meal with his disciples. They gather around the table. Here's the way it says it. In Mark chapter 26, verse 17, Jesus instructs the disciples to go out and make preparations to eat the Passover. Go make preparations to eat the Passover together around the table. Now this simple phrase holds with it so much significance for what's happening here at the very end of Jesus' life. Jesus is talking about Passover, which was a festival that took place every single year. And it commemorated the rescue that God brought to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. Now, if you've read the story or you know the story from the Old Testament, the way this took place was there were 10 plagues that God brought upon the Egyptian people until finally Pharaoh let his hands go and finally let the the, the Israelite people leave. The 10th one was the, the death of the firstborn. Now, God told the Israelite people, this is going to happen, so here's what you must do. Every Israelite family, you need to kill a sacrificial lamb. Take the blood of that lamb and cover the doorposts of your home. And if you do this, then you'll be spared. So sure enough, this is exactly what the Israelite people did. They took the blood of the lamb, they put it over the doorpost, and they were, they were spared the death of the firstborn. Not only that, but God also told them, go ahead and make bread, but a different bread. Don't put leaven in it. There's not going to be time to let it rise. Instead, you got to make bread to be ready to move at any moment's notice because we're leaving. I'm rescuing out of bondage. I'm taking you away from here. So every year, the Israelite people would come together. They would celebrate this particular festival, this Passover festival. They would remember the bread and the blood. And so it's so interesting to me that Jesus, at the very end of his life, he's having a meal with his disciples like every other Jewish individual would have done. He sits down to the table, and of course, there would have been bread there, and there would have been a cup there. And Jesus takes all of these images and puts them together. He takes the image of bread, he takes the image of the cup, and he takes the image of this festival remembering the deliverance from Egypt. And he sits down to have a meal with his friends. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 26 that what Jesus does, he gets up from the table. He takes the bread. He lifts it before them. He gives thanks. And then he breaks it saying, take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. Full of imagery. Full of significance in this sacred space. My body broken for you. After the bread, the Bible says that Jesus takes the cup. He lifts it before them. He gives thanks. And then he says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says to them, this broken body, this shed blood, this bread and this cup, take it often And as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Enter into this sacred space. Embrace the sacrificial offering that I give you, Jesus says. Take the Eucharist with gratitude, with thanksgiving in your hearts. And in turn, may you become the Eucharist within the world. 
as you take yourself the broken body, the shed blood of Christ, may you in turn then become the broken body and the shed blood to the world that is in need around us. Now to be clear, there are traditions who believe that this bread and this cup become the actual body and blood of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. In the Methodist church, we don't believe that's true. We still think it is bread and it is, it is wine or it is juice. But we do believe it's not just a symbol. There's something special, something mysterious, something sacred that happens when we come together and take communion with one another, even if it's in a little plastic cup. We believe God meets us here. We believe it's effective. It does something within our lives that only God can do. And this is the reason why we believe Jesus says, do this often, and every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. One of the most amazing details, I think, from this story at the end of Jesus' life is when you begin to look at the surrounding kind of context, the, the company that he's brought with him to sit at this table is unique. You, Jesus brings with him the disciples, all those who've been faithful to serve alongside of him for the past three years, all the disciples. And yes, that includes one particular disciple who's infamous, and his name is what? Judas. The one disciple who in just in a few moments after this meal together, just a few hours after this meal together, he would betray Jesus. He would hand him over to the authorities. He would essentially sign his death warrant and give Jesus over to the authorities and betray him. And guess what? He's still at the table. You know what that tells me? This table is open to anyone. This table is open to anyone. This opportunity to come and partake in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ is open to anyone. There is room at the table. A few years ago, my wife and I, we had gone to Charleston just for a little getaway. And we were going to one of my favorite restaurants in Charleston called Hank's. It was a seafood restaurant. We walked down there and it seemed like everybody in the world was in Charleston that day because there were people all over the streets. And so sure enough, we got to Hank's and everybody had decided to go eat at Hank's too. So we walked up to kind of put our name in and we're like, hey, listen, we'd love to eat here. How long will it take? And the lady said, well, um, I got good news and bad news. The good news, you can eat here. The bad news is it's going to take like an hour. I was like, oh, I'm so hungry. I don't know if I can wait an hour. So Jen and I kind of looked at each other and we were debating whether we'd stick around and before we could really come to a conclusion, the lady said, hey, listen, um, if you're willing, we do have what's called a community table. And I was like, what's a community table? She said, well, there's a, there's a long table. It's in the middle of the restaurant, and we can seat you there. There's actually two seats left, but it's with 12 other people that you don't know. They don't know each other either. I'm like, really? She said, yeah, this table is just for anybody, kind of small parties to come and sit together with one another instead of off by themselves. So my wife and I looked at each other. We're like, Why not? Adventure. Let's sit at the community table. So sure enough, they brought us in. There was two chairs left at the table. So we pulled our chairs up and we ate next to this wonderful couple. We'd never met them in our life. And right down the way, there was 12 other individuals. We'd never met them in our entire life. They didn't look like us, think like us, act like us. We had no kind of relationship aside from this. But we came around this table together, this community table, and there was space at the table for us. And we ate together. We walked away being like, anytime we get a chance to go to a community table, we're totally doing it again. Such a good decision. But there's space at the table, even for us. You know, this morning, within the Methodist church, we believe in something that is called the open table. What that means is this communion, this cup, this bread, this meal that we share with one another is available to anyone. 
You don't have to be a member of this church to come to this table. You don't have to be sinless to come and partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is not a reward for the righteous. It's not a privilege for the perfect. This is an invitation for us to come into the presence of God and be grateful and be thankful for anyone who seeks to love God, for anyone who earnestly repents of their sin and anyone who seeks to live at peace with one another. You are welcome to come to this table today. It's prepared for you and Jesus invites you. So in just a few moments as a church, both in this room and some folks at home, we're gonna take part in communion with one another. We're going to take the broken body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that has been offered to us as a covering for our sin and as something that truly satisfies us. But we're gonna take it together. And so this morning, may this bread and this cup be to us today the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, this morning, we come to you with grateful hearts, with thankful hearts, recognizing what Jesus has done for us. We long, God, to come into your presence. May you meet us here. For those today, God, that have felt like we are far off from you, who need a touch today, Lord, would you be here in our midst? May you help us to know today and remember today this blood covers us of all of our sin and this bread provides for us and satisfies us our deepest longings. So Lord, as we take this communion with one another, as we take this Eucharist, May you make us the broken body and shed blood of Christ for the very hope of the world. Thank you for this sacred space. Would you meet us here now? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.